Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. People talk about the number of devices tied into networks that are generating just vast amounts of data. And it's not just your mobile phone and your computer to think about it. You know, I have a Nest camera on my front door. That's generating gigabytes of data per day that are being exchanged on a network. And so just the world of data that we live in is so vastly great. You know, the stats are that we'll probably generate more data in the next two years than we've generated in the history of humankind. I mean, that's what we're talking about in the digital age here. That was Michael Lennox, award-winning professor, consultant, author, speaker, and podcaster. He is the Taylor Murphy Professor of Business at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business and has served on the faculty of Duke and NYU and as a visiting professor at Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford. For over 25 years, he has been helping MBA students and executives navigate the competitive dynamics of markets in the face of innovation and disruption. His digital transformation course on Coursera currently has over 150,000 students enrolled. And he's the author of five books, including his latest, Strategy in the Digital Age, Mastering Digital Transformation. As heard in the highlighted clip, his extensive experience and work have given Michael a robust perspective on what strategists should be thinking about when thinking about digital transformation. In this podcast, we talk about What are the core technologies that are thrusting us into this era of digital transformation? And what I love about his explanation is that he doesn't talk about the usual technologies of blockchain or AI or automation, but he focuses on the three foundational technologies that make such technologies possible. How the number one source of competitive advantage economies of a scale is changing in the age of platforms and why human decision making will remain central to the equation even as AI automates and becomes more prevalent. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Lennox. Mike, thank you so much for being here. It is great to get a few minutes to talk to you about digital strategy. Thank you so much for having me. So I learned in preparing for this that I'm older than you. I was born four days before you, (laughs) not too far away from where you were born in Pennsylvania, but I've been able to follow your career. Fascinating. And I want to dig into your work, but I want to start with two questions that I always ask all of my guests. First is, can you complete this sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. I'm actually going to make a Philly reference here. So you will know that I am an avid, avid sports fan. And I have two groups, if you will, of sports teams that I root for. One, not surprisingly, is the University of Virginia, where I currently sit in its faculty. But the second is Philadelphia sports. So I'm a big Philadelphia Eagles fan. I love Phillies, and the Sixers, Flyers. So grew up with Philadelphia sports and continue to follow them, even though I'm down in the state of Virginia these days. Awesome. That's great. My claim to fame is that my nephew plays for the Philadelphia Union, the soccer team. And whenever I get a chance, I plug him as if I had anything to do with that. (laughs) Great. Great. So, you know, maybe add Union to your list. It will. Maybe I do have to add that. Yes. And Mike, second question, which I ask all of our guests, what's your definition of strategy? I like to begin with what we call the strategist challenge. So this is the idea of identifying valuable competitive positions at the intersection of your values and mission as an organization, the opportunities the market provides, and the capabilities you have as an organization. 
and really emphasize that first part of the value emissions piece. I think understanding who you are and what your purpose is, is your North Star and should obviously inform then how you think about how you position yourself in the marketplace. Got it. Very clear. Yeah, so I'm so excited to dig in because you probably have been teaching digital strategy for longer than anyone that I know. You were teaching it before it was called digital transformation. And now you've pulled together what seems to me like a seminal work. And so we have more to cover than we have time for, of course. But I'll just sort of dig in. And we've had a few other people on the podcast talk about digital strategies. We can kind of assume that people have been thinking about it. Let's just start with the technologies that are changing because, you know, often we hear the fourth industrial technologies like blockchain and 3D printing. What I like is that, you know, you really focus on three underlying fundamental technologies. If you could tell me what are the three technologies that are really changing things? Yeah, the three core technologies have been evolving over the past few decades. The one underlying processing power. So maybe we've heard Moore's Law after Gordon Moore about this idea that we see a doubling of processing power roughly every 18 months or so. That is surprisingly proven true for nearly 50 years now. The second one is storage capacity. You can think about cloud computing now, just giving us vastly more ability to store data. And then the third is bandwidth. Our ability to exchange data over networks and platforms has also been growing exponentially over the past few decades. And so the three of those together are really the fundamental building blocks for the current moment in time that we're at here. Got it. Yeah. And this feel like connecting or enabling technologies as opposed to, you know, so I've done a few things like looking at 3D printing, but these are things that can enable 3D printing. So that's why they're the core. Yeah. And actually, I would say really at the core of all of this is data. We're using data to train our algorithms. And I always say I was an engineering student back many, many decades ago. Now, you've already dated us. So I was. Well, they don't know. Everyone thinks I'm 25. Oh, good, good. This is the early 90s. And even an engineer in the early 90s, I was learning AI. I was learning neural networks. I was learning machine learning. But the problem was twofold. One, we didn't have the processing power that we have today. And two, we didn't have the data. Massive amounts of volume of data. That data has arisen because of the connective world we live in. People talk about the number of devices tied into networks that are generating just vast amounts of data. And it's not just your mobile phone and your computer, if you think about it. You know, I have a Nest camera on my front door. That's generating gigabytes of data per day that are being exchanged on a network. And so just the world of data that we live in is so vastly great. You know, the stats are that we'll probably generate more data in the next two years than we've generated in the history of humankind. I mean, that's what we're talking about in the digital age here. Wow. So how does that change competitive advantage? You know, like the debate of is data the new oil or is it the new water? Is it about having the data or is it about being in the flows or creating the data? What's your thought on data? I think this is kind of like the critical point of the book is to just observe that I think when I've run into a lot of organizations who are thinking about digital transformation, they kind of immediately go to their IT organization and, well, we really got to get our data organized better. Maybe we'll create some fancy visuals. And that's all great. But I always say, take a step back because this could fundamentally reshape your business, fundamentally reshape the competitive ordering that you're operating. And I always say, I have not come across an industry yet that isn't at least at some level being digitally transformed, or at least has the potential to be digitally transformed. So a lot of what I've discussed in the book are kind of fundamental economic concepts, like network externalities, this idea that the value of goods and services increases as others consume it. We see this in social networks. We see this in operating systems. We live in a world of platforms that are connecting and allowing for the exchange of data. 
So what this does competitively, probably the biggest fear is we have a lot of industries where we're seeing this kind of winner-take-all dynamic take place where you build scale on a platform, gather all the data, and then allow you to create value-added services over top of that. We're seeing the deconstruction of the value chain so that what might have been a more vertically integrated scale play is now being picked apart as digitally native companies take on just little pieces of this. If you think about fintech, in many ways, the fintech startups that have been disruptive, they aren't going after Citicorp. They're not going after Chase Bank. They're going after little pieces of the value prop that those companies might bring to the table. And that's happening in a wide variety of industries as well. And so it really causes, I think, firms to need to go back and rethink what is the competitive position we're looking to have in a digitally transformed market. Got it. Yeah, I want to go into the model of strategic positioning in the digital era, but let's just dig a little bit into the platforms of value chain deconstruction. So, I mean, platforms are interesting. You know, everyone wants to be the owner and the creator of the platform, but not everyone can be. There's the argument that it's a first mover advantage. Does that mean that you should never launch a platform if you're second? But then we also see deconstructions. I think of some platforms we think are really strong and then they just start unbundling. This is probably not the right example. I'm thinking about Peloton that was a two-sided platform that quickly unwound. What are some of the misconceptions that companies have about platforms and competing with them? Well, I think that you hit it on the head. There's a chicken and egg problem, right? Like there's advantages to scale that happens when you are able to build a successful platform. But how do you get there, right? And that's what I think a lot of companies struggle with. And as much as I think those platforms have these reinforcing dynamics that kind of solidify their position, they can also unravel in some cases fairly quickly. If you've been following Meta slash Facebook, they're coming on in many ways to an existential crisis now, being driven by a number of different things. But one of them is TikTok. So another social network comes out, gets enough scale that they get those network externalities working in their favor. And suddenly what looked like a dominant position for Facebook is suddenly being threatened as this other player moves in. And so while there is some stability and there's some advantages clearly of scale when it comes to these platforms, there's always that new, new thing that can come along and disrupt you yet again. So then if you are a one-to-be TikTok, how do you think about how to find a place to inject yourself and start unraveling the dominant platform? I think what we're seeing in a lot of these platform plays, it goes back to where we started with data and analytics, is you kind of have this three phases where at first you're kind of digitizing assets, if you will, connecting things and digitizing data. Then as you connect and start to exchange it, you're generating this volume of data that leads to the third part, which some have called aggregation. But think of it as leveraging data to add value-added services. My favorite example is like Spotify. Spotify actually uses a number of different AI algorithms to provide those curated playlists that we all love in that system. So you kind of start by digitizing music. You begin to exchange it on platforms and networks like the original Apple downloads and the like. But suddenly all this data tells us something that we can then now add these value adds. Gotcha. I think that's when you start to really get the lock-in is if you can continue to refine and improve your algorithms to provide services that others just simply can't because they don't have the data inherent there. This is sort of vague. I'm just seeing a linkage between what you're describing and another guest we had on the podcast, Talis Teixeira, who has this idea of unbundling. And he kind of talks about, as you say, attackers going after a small piece of the value chain. But for him, it's kind of more on the customer journey side. 
Can you talk to us about the value chain deconstructing and what these attackers are doing? Let me take it even a little broader, right? At the core of a lot of what I do, I've been teaching business strategy for 20 plus years. We talk about the strategist challenge. The strategist challenge is very simply, not easy to execute, but very simply this idea that valuable competitive positions emerge out of the intersection of your values as an organization, your mission as an organization, the opportunities the market provides, and the capabilities you have as an organization. And while digital transformation has been so disruptive for so many businesses and industries, is what you have is a situation where the opportunity set is maybe shifting away from where it historically has been. And it's forcing a reckoning about how do you evolve your capabilities to meet new competitive positions. And I use the term evolve because I have never seen a company just forsake all that had made them in the past successful and then start anew. That's probably a recipe for failure. So you somehow have to take what has historically been the sources of your success and evolve them for this digital age. That can be very humbling, I think, for some companies. I run in organizations, incumbent firms who say things like, well, we want to be the Google of X. And my response to that typically is Google's going to be the Google of X. They're far better positioned than you are for that position you're trying to identify. Gets back to your point of like, we're going to build the platform that everyone is going to use. I'm like, maybe, but probably not. So it forces then a reconsideration of like, where do you fit in to this evolving world? And it might not be the platform play, just simply because you're not the best position. And then it gets to this question of, all right, where in the value chain can we maybe best position ourselves for success? And again, that's as much for definitely, you know, new entrepreneurial entrants, but it's often the case even for incumbent firms to really think through how they're going to try to position themselves. What are some of the positionings? Maybe I'm not the platform, but I can still profit from the platform. What are the options? Yeah. And I think, you know, we talk about this in the book and provide some frameworks for people to kind of walk through. And I don't think these are any different than kind of classic strategy positions, right? Like there's classic differentiated positions where customers might have higher willingness to pay that maybe are even less digitally enabled than other strategies out there. I serve as the chief strategy officer for the Darden School of Business. Like, there's been a lot of fun putting into practice the things that I teach. And in fact, oversee our own digital transformation. So you can imagine higher ed, you know, all these questions about online education, the scalability of education disrupting higher ed. And I do think it is disruptive and it will continue to be disruptive. But for a school like the Darden School, which is known as the world's best educational experience with the world's best teaching faculty who use the case method in the classroom, it'd probably be folly for us to think we're going to be the ultimate online education provider and that's going to be our potential. So for us, it's actually doubling down on what we do well, which is residential-based engaged education that then is supported by and leverages digital technologies and online technologies to enhance what we do. But that core position isn't something we're going to run away from because, again, that would just be too far away from our existing set of capabilities. Yeah, to turn your back on your advantages and capabilities as well. Fascinating. A little bit earlier in the book than where we are right now, you talk about AI and you talk about this difference between prediction and judgment. I was just wondering if you could explain that. Yeah. And then to give credit where the credit is due, I'm borrowing from some colleagues at the University of Toronto who really made this observation. I think it is really critical in our digital age, and especially with generative AI. You know, at the end of the day, AI in general, generative AI in particular, is a prediction machine. It's making predictions about, in the case of generative AI like ChatGPT, what's the next word that most likely makes the most sense here? Even with the best prediction that you can have out there, you still need judgment layered on top of that 
what do we do with the prediction? Do we agree with the prediction? Do we even, you know, in cases of autonomy, do we give autonomy and decision making to the machine, if you will? That's a human judgment. And that doesn't go away in this digital age. If anything, it becomes incredibly more valuable as we automate a lot of the more rote type of activities that we engage in. As you can imagine, this book coming out, lots of conversations have been engaged with about the end of work, right? Everyone's worried that AI is going to replace all of our jobs. I do like to point out, like the original Luddites go back, you know, 150 years who worried about industrialization taking their jobs from machines. So this has been a fear for a long time, and it hasn't necessarily proven true over history. I think what it's going to do, though, is it might exasperate income inequality, because I think those who now sit, if you will, at the top of the pyramid will be that much more productive. If you're a lawyer, you don't need a team of junior associates to do the basic case work for you. You can leverage something like a chat GPT to then make yourself 10x more productive. Right. Yeah, the legal, I hadn't thought of it that way, but the professional service probably a great metaphor because it's all about the size of the pyramid and now your pyramid base has gone exponentially larger. I think it's true for consulting. I think this is true for potentially doctors. I think there's a whole host of industries that are going to see this, you know, you said the pyramid become more like a diamond. What do you mean by a diamond? You still need some people kind of working their way up through the organization and becoming partners and the like. Okay, right, right. right. The vast number of 22-year-olds that consulting firms hire to put together PowerPoint decks, that might go away here. Gotcha, yes. Because the diamond is just the human. The human piece, yes. Gotcha, all right. So in preparing for this, I got to listen to some of the podcasts that you've created with Darden. And you know a lot about how AI and those technologies are going to impact pharma or agriculture, energy. Can you just maybe illustrate where you see things going through one of those sectors or another? Yeah. I mean, one of my other research interests and passions is around sustainability, environmental issues, and in particular, more recently, decarbonization efforts. And so just as one example where AI could help with decarbonization, as we move to adopting more renewables on our electrical grid, it creates some complexities. One is the intermittency issue, like the sun doesn't always shine, but it's also the potential for distributed energy. So what goes from a system where you have like a thousand or so natural gas electric plants, you know, now could be millions of point sources of electricity, including on your home. And so what was a very vertically integrated, traditional produce electricity, distribute to your home and use actually starts to look like a two-sided market. Now, suddenly, as a homeowner, I am consuming electricity. Sometimes what I might be generating electricity with a solar panel, and I might even have a battery stack in a car, electric vehicle. And it becomes this very dynamic process of trading electricity in real time to balance the grid. That is a complex problem that people are coming at it using AI. This is going to require artificial intelligence to make a system like this work. And there's a number of companies trying to do exactly that. To be able to predict where demand and supply will be, because right now we have to predict demand, but we don't have to predict supply. And interconnecting now thousands of suppliers with users. Exactly. I mean, you still have to do it now because one of the weird things about electricity is you have to balance the grid at all points in time. So supply and demand have to be in equilibrium, if you will. There could be things like battery storage that allow you to deploy it when you do. And again, the complexity is going from a few thousand to millions and millions of sources of electricity. And by the way, not only just the trading of electrons, it's also the pricing. So the very complex dynamic pricing models, like in the moment, you know, did everybody turn their lights on because it suddenly got dark out because it's cloudy? Like all of this is going to be dynamically engaged in these systems. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see the complexity. 
So I've got like 15 more questions and we're reaching the top of our time with you. So I'm just going to move to maybe one or two final questions. Just moving to get kind of practical here. Can you talk to us about what a strategist should do or maybe what are the phases that a strategist should take in order to begin transforming or preparing their organization to lead in the digital age? So in the book, I advance this concept of a digital transformation stack you know, filling in with the typical kind of way we talk in the software world. And at the base of that is your digital infrastructure. So this is cloud computing, the way you manipulate and store data. Layered atop of that are your data and analytics. So these are the tools you bring, including AI, that transform that data into kind of meaningful insights and the like. On top of that is what we call digital applications. And this is really where a lot of initiatives and organizations reside. We're going to have a new HR system that helps support our employees so they can have automated processing or a way in which I engage my customer for some like recommendation engine. So those applications build off the data analytics and the digital infrastructure. But the top of that stack is your digital strategy. And as I like to say, you know, if you build from the ground up, good luck. And you'll probably have a lot of failed initiatives as a company. If you start with your digital infrastructure. Yeah, and I find too many organizations start there. They immediately go to their IT organization and what do we need to do to get our data in order? Then eventually they start building, you know, fancy widgets, fancy applications, never thinking, wait, where are you trying to go with this? So my metaphor for this is as if you're improving the efficiency of the engines on the Titanic. You know, all you're doing is hitting the iceberg more efficiently or quicker than you were before. So how do you think about where you steer the ship is a critical issue for guiding your digital transformation. So in the first half of the book, it's really about thinking about that top question. You know, what is that position you're aiming for and trying to achieve in this evolving marketplace? And then everything else in your digital transformation efforts needs to be informed by that needs to build up to what that position you're trying to accomplish. All right, that's great. That's really clear. So I highly recommend people look at the book and particularly if you're activating this, that section. I love the way the book is structured. The leading in the digital age is the second part of the book and it lays that out the stack really nicely. So unfortunately, that's the time that we have with you. Thank you so much for taking some time to share what you have been piecing together for a career. How else can people learn from you and stay connected with you? Certainly, we're going to recommend that they buy Strategy in the Digital Age, Mastering Digital Transformation. What else can people do that want to keep learning from you? Yeah, you know, you can track me and connect with me on michaellenox.com, which is M-I-C-H-A-E-L dash L-E-N-O-X. The book will be coming out and is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all your favorite online retailers. Great. And you've got a MOOC and you do executive education and all kinds of other things, right? I even have a podcast myself. Yes. <laughs> great. Great. Well, thank you so much for the work you do and for taking some time to share it with us, Mike. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate having the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.